And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, again, my favorite time of the show. And I need you guys to stay a little patient if the audio quality sounds a little bit off this week. It's, uh, it's for good cause. I am doing this from a hotel room on uh, spotty hotel Wi-Fi <laughs> without my mic. And uh, I, I couldn't be joined by a better guest because she's such a trooper. And she's, <laughs> she's willing to put up with all these technical difficulties. I'm joined by shy girl herself, Tracy Shukart. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Glad. Good to be back. It's been a while. And, yeah, we've, uh, we've been trying to do this for a couple of weeks now. So. Well, I, and, and we, if people knew the hoops that we've been jumping through to make this happen, right? right? Um, <laughs> which is why under normal circumstances, I would just put it off until, until uh, conditions were perfect. But... If, if you and I can connect and it's over two tin cans connected by a string, uh, I, I was going to take that opportunity. So uh, obviously a lot going on in your world. But one of the things I wanted before we really get into the, the matters of the day, um, I was thinking about something. I was actually talking to my wife uh, about you because um, all of our all, all of my friends and family that listen to the show all of the all of the women the first thing they ask me all the time is you gotta have tracy back. you gotta have tracy back on we love we love hearing from a woman that knows this stuff better than all you guys do so tracy just give us a little bit of your background i i know how you came up as a trader but how did you get so focused and so knowledgeable on oil kind of Kind of give us that origin. Story. Yeah, so well, um, I started at the Chicago Board of Trade. I think you guys kind of all know my backstory a little bit, but I started in um, a boiler room, really, because I, I yep. just went on, knocked on doors, and whoever would give me a job, I was, you know, I was completely happy about just because I wanted to get into the industry, and um, I. My focus, uh, my focus in college was uh, international relations uh, and political science, focusing on the Middle East. So I studied oil quite a bit, obviously, because um, it's a big part of that part of the world. Um, and then when I was a broker, um, hawking, hawking options on futures. Uh, I've been um, there. <laughs> you know, calling four hundred people a day. You want to give me some? Oh yeah. Give me some, and that's when like round turns were like seventy dollars a round turn, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the good old days. But um, so yeah, and so literally my first like super winning trade with my first client was an options trade in in oil, and I was like. Okay, I love I love it. It's done. This is my background. <laughs> I'm all over it, um, and so that's really how it started. And so, really, since you know, since then, obviously, um, when I worked on the floor, I worked in the grain room, uh, and so you know, I've pretty much traded everything. Um, but oil is kind of just always stuck with me. So that was that was the that was the love affair. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it, isn't it funny how it, it it's it's so often colored by our first biggest winning trades, right? Uh, I I I wasn't dealing in the individual options or anything like that, or even trading the underlying commodity. But I've always had an affinity for energy companies, and I think one of the reasons why is it was one of our biggest bets coming out of the financial crisis, and we did really well, right? right? And it just kind of. <laughs> It, it kind of have you ever heard that these guys talk and I and I think there's so much to it, but um, it, it's not like a real theory or anything like that. But this this kind of thought that whatever market you're born into, right, like so whatever market you experience in, in the first stage of your career kind of will ever, you know, shade your outlook. Have you heard people talk about? Yeah, that? absolutely. And I totally agree with that. I totally agree oh, with I, that because, you know, I spent the first couple years um, really when I was on the brokerage side of the business, you know, that was my main focus just became energy, although obviously I would trade whatever clients wanted to trade. <laughs> but really, that's right. where my forte was. That's where, you know, I, I did the best. And that's where my interest really, really was at. So in the in the Tracy Shukart portfolio, when you're managing your own money, do you stick straight? I mean, are you 
are you all over the place? I mean, I know where your focus is professionally, but what do you do on your own? Like when you're when you're trading your own account, do you how what other things will you get involved in and, and kind of give me give me how that yeah, works? Yeah, my focus is completely energy and materials, both for the family office um, that I trade that that I manage an account for and for my personal account. So I'm 100 okay, percent energy so- and materials, and that, that's it. <laughs> you, you stick to your knitting. Yes, exactly. I have, I have, you know, I, I have some, I have some food in there because, you know, yep. I think that's a good trade as well. So, I have a, you know, a couple of like big agricultural companies in there, and you know, I've traded fertilizer before, but that kind of, it, to me, that's in the same niche as energy because of, um, because of natural gas. Right. And, and, and I guess you could yep. say food fits in that as well. Right. Because you need fertilizer, you need energy to run all of these businesses. So really all to me is one big giant energy trade. So um, energy is kind of important. A little bit. Makes the world go round. Without it, we, we don't have much, do we? <laughs> No, no. And, and this is kind of a perfect segue into our into our conversation. Quite honestly, uh, you know, I've said this before and, and I really don't mean to be pumping sunshine. But um, when it comes to energy and oil, uh, there are about three people that I listen to. You're one of them. Josh Young is the other. And my own uh, Bulwark's own macro analyst, Chase Taylor. Uh, outside of that, uh, I just don't trust a lot of these takes. So. I, you know, and, and the reason why, you know, it, it's not it, obviously I'm not saying you can't be wrong. We're in this business. We're all wrong. I, I just know that you do your homework. Yeah. And so I, I've, I've had a lot of a lot of confusion, Tracy, reading the headlines and looking at the data. Um, I'm seeing what looked to me in my untrained eye uh, like really big builds, which have surprised me. Uh, we give me kind of a. a there's so many different ways I want to attack this conversation, and there's so many different inputs. Why don't we kind of just start with you giving me a late or, or kind of an overview on where we're at with crude? And I, I'll tell you why the the build again address the builds. Maybe I'm reading that information wrong. Maybe it's not as big as it looks to me. Um, but it, it just surprised me that that coincided with China reopening. What's happening there in the world of crude? Are we building inventories? Do the inventory builds look look as big as they are to my eye, kind of give us the give us the four one one and break it down. No, I don't think it's as bad as everybody thinks. First of all, you know we did have the SPR draw stopped right by the end of the year, and I think everybody immediately assumed that we were going to have these big draws afterwards. But you have to remember that you know we are in a seasonal downtime, right? Demand is lower, and really. We've only built uh, 58 million barrels over the last month after huge draws. I mean, we drew down the SPR almost 50 percent. And that counts, you know, uh, there are two camps, one that doesn't count the SPR and draws and the other does. I count the SPR and draws because it's total stocks because you have commercial crude inventories, right? And you have the SPR. Um, And although they're technically separate, right, if you take something out of the SPR, it goes into commercial crude inventories. And so but still, you have to look at it as a whole of what do you have on hand? So. That's one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is we've had these huge adjustments in the EIA numbers, right? Um, and they've ad- they've been adding I don't know ten to fifteen million barrels, um, and their adjustment is what they say is cal- is an adjustment to their calculation for unknowns, right? But it's just very interesting that as soon as the SPR stopped. We suddenly started having a lot of uh, a lot higher adjustments, so I'm not really sure about that. Yeah, what, what do so, we? Well, yeah, what do we? What do we glean from that, Tracy? I, I don't even know. I, I don't know. I, I feel. Yeah, I don't even know what. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of manipulation going on right now, and I think what people should focus on, and what I've been saying for, you know, the last few months, really, is to look at the 914 report, <clears throat> which is the EIA monthly report. It lags by two months, but if you take, for example, this summer, like June, July, they were showing huge dip in demand, 
but by the time that monthly report came out, it showed the exact opposite. And we've been seeing very large discrepancies between the weekly reports and the monthly reports. And I think the market's kind of starting to see through that at this point. Um, and that's why even with these big bills, we're still, uh, we're still bouncing at this point. And I think that, again, please look at, the, look at the monthly reports because that's when everything's reconciled and they're much more accurate than the weekly reports. Okay. Again, okay. the problem is the problem is they lag two months. So we won't get January's reports when all these adjustments really started. We won't get January report till March. That's the unfortunate part of the situation. What what has uh, on a little bit different note, but but you know same topic. Um, what had I from the stuff I have read, and again. I, I will yield to you, so have no problems correcting me if I'm wrong here. Uh, from the stuff I've read, it looks like China has done some serious inventory building themselves, really build up their stockpiles and crude. Um, have they? I'm pushing back on that. I'm pushing back on that a little bit. Actually, what they've been doing is drawing on their SPR. They were building stocks oh, when right. they were on lockdown, right? But since then, okay. they've been actually drawing their SPR. And so... Um, I will. I will actually post that on Twitter later for you. Um, why, why? Hold on. Hold on. Why? Why are they drawing their SPR at these prices? Well, well <clears throat> I mean, they have the stocks, right? And if they, you know, so I think that part of the reason is it's the cheapest, easiest, fastest way to go. But you know, they are buying a lot from. Russia now in February they were the, Russia's largest customer and so again because we get kind of these lagging numbers and because China is not as transparent in most of their data <laughs> as we would like it to be um, you know I think that you know I think they're of course they're enjoying cheap Russian natural gas and um, crude oil right now. They are drawing down stocks. And I think it's more a function of, you know, I think I think we're going to see an uptick in China demand. And I think they'll have to go globally to, to, to the market to buy, not just from Russia. Um, but I don't think it's going to be, it's, you know, I think everybody expected it to be really immediate, but it's not. You know, that, and I knew that it wasn't going to be, and I, I said, um, on Twitter that, you know, I think that, or in my Twitter spaces as well, that I, I just think that the opening is not going to be as voracious as people kind of assume it is. And then I was right, because they were drawing on their SPR and they, you know, but <clears throat> in January, but then they have really started buying from Russia. So um, that will help globally overall, but I just think it's going to take a little bit more time. You also have to look at their property sectors. Still horrible right now, right? And that's a lot of, say, energy and metals. Um, and so at, we really need to see kind of, I think, an uptick in that sector, as well as some infrastructure projects and, and things of that nature. But to me, again, it goes back to, you know, China's SPR. They were locked down for almost a year. Um, they were still buying that whole time. So it makes sense for them to draw on what what they had been buying that they weren't using. Yeah, yeah. On on the on the Russian side of it, um, one of the things, and I I've seen you talk about this a little bit, um, and maybe you've talked about it a lot. I, I but anyway, bumping around, talking to the people again that I listen to. One of the things that I think those you know experts in the field are go. You know, I would certainly not consider myself an expert in the energy sector, but somebody that pays close attention. One of the things that we've been talking about, and I've heard a lot of other people discussing, was the belief that as the U.S. and Western, you know, know-how, Western talent, Western technology was pulled out of Russia, that production would fall off precipitously. Right. That has not yet occurred. What do you make of that? Well, I think two things. One thing, Schlumberger decided to stay. <laughs> 
right? And so. Oh, okay. I didn't realize they reversed that. They they ended up staying. Yeah. There? So L S O B is still there, and they're staying. And so that's one thing. And then the other thing is is that you know I talked to some people that you know, their focus is. I talked to some people that are actually Russian, and that um, this is their their market, right? And you know, since American companies have been there so long, like Baker Hughes, et cetera, you know, they've taught those engineers a lot, and so. You know, the Russian engineers, it's not like they don't know how to do anything. They've been working side by side with American engineers this whole time. And so that's also, a, a, you know, another factor. Um, so, you know, I, I know that was a big theory that everybody put forward. But, you know, when I did my own research about it, it made sense to me that this probably wasn't going to be as big of a problem that most people anticipated especially due to the fact that SLB stayed. How did they, how did they get away with that, Tracy? I, I didn't think they were even allowed to stay. Doesn't that, I mean, doesn't that violate the sanctions? There's no secondary sanctions. That would be considered a secondary, oh. that would be considered a secondary service. And so um, you can have sanctions on oil, but there's no sanctions on service companies or, or whether okay. they can or cannot okay. do business there. Well, it also seems to me too, and one of the things I, I was really indifferent on this topic just because I don't know enough. Um, but one of the things that I, on the on the negative side, meaning one of the reasons I doubted that whole line um, was I just, now <laughs> take this with a grain of salt because I think that a lot of people are surprised by the way Putin has handled things. But one of the things that I thought to myself was, okay, if he's gonna launch this against Ukraine and he's gonna create this global crap storm, right? Um, I would doubt he would do it if he didn't think he could keep the spigots open and keep producing and keep, you know what I mean, keep bringing in dollars. Um, exactly. And so it, it, right, it seems like that's exactly what's happened. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think their production has really pulled back at all. Has it? No, it hasn't. In fact, well, they did say they were going to cut 500,000 barrels per day in March. But I don't think that was, I know there were a lot of theories going around that, oh, they're trying to squeeze the West and whatever. Really, I, I don't think so at all. I think what they were trying to do is to bring in that spread, that URL's Brent spread, and it worked. So, or it's working. Um, and so I really, that's what I think their kind of deal was as far as their 500K. And with Russia, you know, they have um, condensates plus oil, so you don't really know what they're exactly cutting because they they put condensates in the oil category. Okay. Yeah, so, okay, so we've got, do, where do we see, where do we see China demand if, if obvious, I mean, they've got a, I, I guess this could be a head fake reopening and they could shut down again, but but I, I wouldn't seem to me like that's very viable um, for a for a whole host of reasons. So let's assume that the opening continues the way it is and, you know, they continue to get things rolling. If you saw their PMI numbers uh, come out, Ooh, and, you know, that, that would confirm that. Yeah, certainly confirm them reopening. Um, what do you what kind of demand are you looking at that bringing back on them? How much do you think that impacts daily? Well, I, I think that, you know, I mean, we, analysts are all over the place with this. I'm kind of in the camp. I'm in the middle of that range. So, um, you know, we've got a range from like 500K to, you know, 1.2 million. I think 800,000 by the end of the year is absolutely doable. Um, you know, I don't want to reach for the stars, but, you know, that's a lot of demand coming back online no matter what, being that we're seeing demand increase, right, even before China reopened. The end of last year, global demand was higher than 2019, and that was unexpected, and that's without China. And we're also seeing production declines globally. And so adding another, you know, 800,000 barrels per day um, of China demand, and it could end up being higher, could end up being a little bit less. I mean, like, you know, but that, that's still a lot of demand coming on the heels of declining production. Yeah. Hey, I saw some numbers the other day 
and wanted to run them by you. I've got it in my notes to, to ask you this. But I saw, I was reading an article the other day that was looking at, and, and they were using uh, uh, industry data. So, so surveys, talking to companies um, seemed, seemed pretty, pretty solid. And they said that based on their estimates, they expect investment in the energy sector, specifically oil and gas, to be 30 to 40 percent lower in 2023 than it was in 2019. Now, you and I both know that the industry wasn't booming in 2019. Right. Do, are, are those, do, 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 what do you think of that estimate down 30 to 40 percent? Is that in line with what you're seeing? Yeah. And I, I mean, first of all, we've had seven years of declining CapEx. Right. So even, you know, I think that I think, you know, I think it was probably 20 to 30 percent less than 2019 is absolutely feasible. As a guesstimate, just looking at who's, you know, you have banks that aren't funding these projects. We have, you know, we have companies that don't want to spend CapEx. I mean, look at, uh, you know, for the last, what, two years, all you've heard quarter after quarter, including Earnings just, you know, Q4 earnings that just reported, you know, we don't want to spend on CapEx. We want, you know, we want to raise dividends. We want to pay down debts <laughs> and capital preservation, right? That's all you hear about. Very few companies yeah. actually mentioned that um, they were interested in CapEx. Certainly, um, you know, definitely in the shale Cash, definitely not a lot. <laughs> you had a few mid-sized companies um, kind of talk about it. But um, so I don't think globally, you know, you have windfall taxes in Europe. Uh, you know, Shell, BP, Equinor have all talked about how, you know, they all their plans for expansion in the U.K. are pulled back now. <laughs> you have Suncorp leaving yeah. the UK. I mean, you have so you know there's a lot going on right now, and so I you know definitely we're going to have a capex problem, huge capex problem, and um, probably you know next year will probably be 350 billion dollars in in a capex deficit, and that's only you know going to continue to grow by 20. 30, that should be over 650 billion in a capex deficit. So you know we're facing huge challenges here, and already, you know, you're seeing global demand increase when everybody said it was going to decrease, and we're just not seeing that anywhere. No, yeah, not not seeing anywhere that, it, or yeah, not seeing that anywhere for certain. Um, <clears throat> when I'm looking at this market now, so I, I kind of want to. One of the thought experiences or experiments I want to roll with you is I, recently somebody was like, well, you're an energy bull. And I looked at them and I said, well, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you're all bulled up on energy. And I go, well, hold on a second. I'm, I'm actually pretty neutral on this. But the reason that I am bullish is because, well, first of all, I'm an equity investor and I think I won't get any argument from you uh, <laughs> that contrary to some of the popular narratives out there, um, the energy space, when I look at the profitability and the health of the balance sheets, and then I look at the price of the stocks, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I I do not recall a time in my career that's, I've been managing money for 16 years now. I, I do not personally remember a time in my career where I was looking at a sector or group of stocks that was as cheap as they currently are, all things Well, absolutely. Right? I mean, if you, you look at PE ratios, I mean, look, look at some of these. Microsoft still has a larger market cap than 23 of the largest energy firms combined on the S&P 500. Now, come on. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, any way you want to look at it. Um, it you look at energy weighting in the S&P 500, you're historically somewhere between 12 and 14 percent. You had a low of like two, two and exactly. a half percent weighting. <laughs> now you're at five. Exactly. Right. So so that, so I look at one of the things that, that so let's go from there. So that to me is looking at the investment opportunity as far as the equities go. And I think they're really cheap. Right. So then I want to pull back a little bit and look at the macro picture and let's look at oil in general. And I want to look kind of paint the picture of the way that I see the industry or I see the market. And I kind of want you to critique it. Tell me where I'm right. Tell me where I'm wrong. And I kind of give it your take. But when I look at the oil markets, 
I kind of see the period of time we're in as sort of like the eye of the storm, meaning I think there are a lot of things going on. I think there is manipulation as far as the price goes. Um, and when I say manipulation, I don't mean with like capital M, like plunge protection team. I just think that the vast majority of market participants have every incentive for the price to go down and not to go up. And they're going to release SPRs and they're going to do whatever they can to paint the tape and, and everything in their power to keep it to keep it down. Right. Like, I'm not talking like a big conspiracy here. I just think that, you know, the vast majority of world powers have a, huh. an incentive to keep it down. So I look at this total market, though, and I'm not saying when I'm not even going to talk about the magnitude, but I see it as sort of a uh, a perfect environment. Uh, a, a fire waiting for a spark. Meaning, if one thing were to go awry, I could see crude going on a, a face-melting rally, just because of of the background being, you know, the the background being what it is, and supplies being as tight, and investment, and all the different things that we've talked about. I, I just see it like a coiled spring. And furthermore, every day that consumption goes by and investment doesn't happen, I see that that coil getting tighter and tighter. And I, I, I feel like, like I said, I feel like it's a forest fire looking for a spark. Um, do you agree with that assessment? Uh, if you do, let us know what parts, what do you disagree with? And then I've got some follow-on questions because I just kind of wanted to make sure that we were on the same footing. What, what do you make of that oil market assessment? Well, so 100%, yes. Global powers, governments and central banks want lower oil prices, right? They're trying to fight inflation right now. And energy has been a thorn in their side. So 100% agree with that. Every, you know, nobody wants high, high oil prices right now. It's bad for consumers, it's central banks that's working against their uh, policy, and certainly, you know, governments don't want that. So 100% I agree with that. Um, as far as, you know, I think, you know, we've seen how oil reacts when there is a spark, right? We saw last February what happened um, when the Ukraine invasion happened. We spiked to $139. So oil, I think, can, you know, if the right situation comes along, it can do that. What I'm hoping is that I think we're going to have higher for longer oil prices. I'm hoping we don't see that huge spike to the upside because it's unsustainable. What I would like right. to see, <laughs> what I would like to see is, well, I think we're, it's higher for longer no matter what. I mean, you just can't, you know, just because of the supply and demand balance, you know, we're, I, you know, it's going to be, you know, over $70 probably for a very, very long time. So something changes. Um, so, you know, again, I... Tracy, can it... Hold on on that point, Tracy. And, and again, correct me if I, I'm going to yield to you whenever it comes to these energy topics, because I just know you know so much more than I do. But again, when I think about that, I, when I think about it staying at $70, the longer it stays at $70, isn't it just making the back end of this even worse? Because $70, in my opinion, I think it's kind of a sweet spot as far as the central banks are concerned. But unfortunately, I think it's also sort of a sweet spot for exacerbated supply shortages because it's not a high enough number to incentivize the type of investment we need to see, right? Oh, 100%. That's only one part of the equation of the investment that we want to see. We have to deal with, you know, the West and their green energy policies that are completely working against the industry. I mean, there's so many factors working against the industry to, uh, to increase supply at this point. It's un unbelievable. So that's why I say, you know, we're going to have higher for longer for the foreseeable future right now and you know at least until some sort of uh, technology comes along that's not uh, solar or wind <laughs> that can replace this right um, certainly nuclear is an option but nobody wants that either so um, but yeah so I think higher for longer and you know I, I really hope we don't see a spike to $250 I don't think that we are but never say never in the oil industry um it depends on how bad the situation gets 
but, you know, I, I certainly think that, you know, over the next couple of years, you could have $100 the norm, right? Which would... Well, I, yeah, I. it's so funny. I, I've heard people, when it, I've made that comment before, and I've gotten pushback, and they're like, oh, that's way too high. And I look at them, and I'm like, what, what are you too high, right? Oil got up to 147 in 2007, now, now, or 146, whatever it was. Now, obviously, that wasn't sustainable. But when you look at housing prices, go look at car prices for crying out loud. Everything. I, I don't understand where this whole, I look at $70 to $100 oil. If, if you sat there and told me right now that that would be the average price over the next five to seven years, I, I'd sit there and go, take it are you kidding me in, in this inflationary environment like that's the worst it's gonna get i, I don't i kind of see that as a floor Tracy. yeah well you know i mean i what's interesting is i did post an inflation adjusted chart uh for oil from 1949 to present you know and if you look oh i would love to see it, that i missed that what did it say so basically i mean oil's not even high right now <laughs> like we got Right. We've got room to go for an inflation-adjusted chart. Um, you know, um, it, it, it's a lot lower than you think, right? It's you know, it's yeah. really around like sixty dollars, fifty dollars, if you know, comparatively speaking. So, um, oil prices aren't as high as people think they are when you're looking at at them inflation-adjusted. I'll DM you that chart later. Yeah, I would. I'd love to see that. That'd be fantastic. What do you follow? I, again, how close attention are you paying to coal? Paying attention to what? Sorry. To coal. How, how much attention do you pay? To yeah. Coal? Um, yes, I've tried. I've. I, I, we were in MOS and IPI last year. Well, okay. The year before. So, um, yeah, I pay attention to coal. Coal. I mean, coal. I think is you know it's not going away anytime soon. <laughs> Well, what's crazy to me, Tracy, is I, it's, it looks like it's be, it looks like it's going to play a bigger role going forward, at least for the for the foreseeable future. Well, yeah, I mean, especially if you look at Asia, uh, particularly in say India and Pakistan, it's cheap energy, right? That's all. You know, Pakistan can't get its hands on a cargo of LNG because there's a global fight over it, and they're not a wealthy country. <laughs> So um, they're relying on coal. We all know China has built more coal plants um, in 2022. I I guess their coal expansion in 2022 could power all of UK. (laughs) So, you know, when you're talking about these, especially in these emerging markets, that's it's not going away anytime soon. In fact, we've only seen an increase in consumption. I mean, heck, even in Germany, we've seen in 2022, we saw an increase in, in coal consumption. So this, this is so, you know, this will not be news to any of the people listening to this, either people that listen to all your stuff or people that regularly listen to our show. Um, it just, it, it, it is incredible to me that we have all of this talk about all of this green garbage in, in, in the United States and European countries and Western democracies and China's like building, you know, <laughs> throwing up coal plants back. I mean, talk about, you know, it's, 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 we're like using a bucket to bail out the boat while somebody's using five buckets to pour water back in. You know what I mean? Like it, this is ridiculous. I, 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 exactly. I mean, You're not going to reduce CO2. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But if you want right. to get to the levels that they want to get to, you literally can't because China's making up for the rest of the entire planet <laughs> itself. And ramping. Right. And ramping. Right. Which, is, which is crazy. That's why I also laugh. Yeah, but look at the Chinese converting to electric cars. And I'm like, There's, do you have any idea what's charging those cars? Well, exactly. Right? It's cool. And, and, you know, they talk about how China expansion of wind and solar has been so huge. But it's coming from a very low level, right? And so if you look at right. from the levels it's coming from, it's not a lot. <laughs> no, and do and you know why? Because they're really practical and they want a functioning grid, well, right? <laughs> exactly. I, it's, it's, it's not too tough to figure that one out. 
Okay, so when we're looking at uh, looking now pulling back, looking at the broader economy, where do you think? I, I was having conversations with our clients recently, and now I will admit we're, we're entering the complete spitballing phase of this conversation. We've talked about where where oil is, and we've talked about kind of a, a, a longer term floor, kind of a lower range that we kind of think we're in right now. Where do you think that bottom is? Like, let's say, you know, I, I'm of the belief that, you know, oil can do anything over the short run, but I just, I kind of have a tough time seeing it dip too far from here and staying there at any, for, for any length of time, just because of the production situation and the backdrop that we've been discussing. Where are you on that? Oh. Do you think that are you as confident as I am, yes. or do you think there's more vulnerability to the price? No, absolutely. I'm 100% confident on that. And you have to understand that Joe Biden or the Biden administration basically put a floor under that and said, we want to buy it 68 to $72, right? And so <laughs> if, if that indeed comes to fruition, you know, um, they're going to start buying for the S- SPR at those levels, and oil price is going to go right back up. If we even, you know, if we dip to those levels, and I'm not sure that we can, but again, it's higher for longer. I can't stress that enough. Yeah, no, it seems like it seems like the higher for longer mantra is working for a lot of different things right now, right? Including rates and inflation. <laughs> it just it seems like that's kind of the story of the day. Um, on the on the uh, more now flipping over to like more of the global outlook here. Um, are, are you watching? I'm sort of surprised we're not seeing, um, you know, more more investment in third world countries. Like I, I, I'm sitting here talking to you from Mexico, and I'm a bit surprised that I we haven't seen. I, you know, I think you and I both know that Mexico's got it's not the wealthiest in terms of natural resources, but they got a you know they've got a wealth of natural resources here. I'm sort of surprised you haven't seen production ramp on the energy side in some of those areas to take advantage. I mean, now you've got prices settled back down to mid 70s, so it's not as, as it's not as attractive. But I was just of the thought that you might you, you'd see more investment come in in some of these other third world areas. Well, why have we really not seen that, or or have we? And I'm just mistaken. Well, I think well, Mexico's a special case because. They want to nationalize everything. I mean, they, they, obviously, they have a national oil company. They're talking about nationalizing the lithium industry. And so I think that although you'll see a lot of manufacturing move there because it's cheap and it's, you know, whatever, you're not going to see a lot of resource investment if you have this government nationalizing it because they tend to not handle things that well in, in Mexico <laughs> nationalization. So, you know, that's just one thing. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure with, you know, I mean, we are seeing a lot of investment, obviously, in Africa right now. You know, we just had yep. Yellen go over there and make a trip, and even though she's trying to get them to, you know, use wind and solar, I'm like, lady, these people don't have electricity at all. Let's... <laughs> They don't know where their next meals come right. from. So, but you know, you yeah. have seen Africa's, a, you know, e, the EU's there, right? U.S. is there, Russia's there, China's there, you know. So there is a lot of investment there. Again, some of those countries are very sketch to invest in because you have to deal with the governments there and whatnot. But, um, <clears throat> uh, but, but we are seeing investment. You know, we are seeing some investment because everybody, you know, particularly the West is like, I don't want that in my backyard, right? I don't, you know, we don't want, <coughs> pardon me, sorry, um, you know, mining, right? We can't get a mining permit in the U.S. for 10 years, and that's after you go through a million legal battles. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, there are countries where there, we are seeing investment, again, um, but, you know, a lot of those countries, again, a lot of governmental red tape, a lot of, you know, bureaucracy that you have to deal with, a lot of bribes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to, you got to, you got to, you got to line those pockets, right? You got to grease those hands. Right. Um, what, when we're looking out at, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm assuming you do track this, where are we at as far as oil consumption or daily oil demand compared to before COVID? Where, 
do you do you do you look at it that way? Or are you? Oh yeah, I always do. But I, again, because of that mishap during the summer, I try to. I I'm looking at the monthly data, not the weekly data. Um, gotcha. You know, I, I kind of switch to that, and so you know, we're holding over 20 million barrels a day, strong. You know, and that's right up there. You know, and I, I guess depending on the week, if you look at the weekly numbers, um, you know. We're, we've gone above 2019 levels. We've gone below 2019 levels. I think the weekly numbers are too erratic, personally. And again, I question them. So look at the monthly, even though it's lagging. But, you know, we're not seeing any big declines. <laughs> Tracy, how long? I, but, but you've been tracking this data for a long time. Yeah. I'm assuming you were tracking the weekly data for a good reason. What changed? I don't know. I don't. I don't know how. It's really this year, or I should say, this started in. I would say this started in 2022, right? And I think, kind of, I don't want to be a conspiracy theory thing, but I think. No, no, no. But yeah, I think the whole SPR release just whacked it because it was so large. I think it whacked everything out, and. And that's when we started seeing these crazy adjustment numbers and the data was, you know, kind of becoming, you know, unpredictable and unreliable. Um, again, and I, you know, the only thing I can think that really changed, um, I think, because they started the adjustment in 2004, the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. I think that's when the adjustment thing started. But it really didn't get start getting to be a huge problem, in my opinion, until 2022. And the only thing I can attribute to that is somehow that SPR release messed up the numbers somehow. <laughs> yeah, I well, because I mean, you've been. Tra- I mean, how long have you been tracking data like this? For I mean, like 20 years. <laughs> And so all of a sudden you just had to abandon. So I think that, yeah, because it was becoming so off again, you know, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. I don't know what happened in 2022 where it all went awry because, you know, uh, the oil companies have to report the same as they did forever. (laughs) Tracy, if, 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 if you could pin it, like try to help us. I, I just I, I really want to try to get, and I think the listeners probably do too. I really want to try to see it through your eyes. What aspect of it? What what caught you the most off guard? Kind of walk us through that, and and what what made you go? What in the world is going it on? It was the demand numbers, the weekly demand numbers. We're we're in the middle of summer, which is the highest demand season, right? Every other number was pointing upwards, and then you have EAIA come in, and they had this huge dip, like 2 million barrels per day dip all of a sudden in the middle of summer when we know well, very well, if you look at mobility data, if you look at TSA, if you look at you know anything that you can, any high-frequency data suggested that there's no way there was you know a 2 million drop, a barrel per a two million barrel per day drop, and so that's when I really started questioning it. And then, um, you know, then we started seeing these huge adjustment numbers when the SPR so when 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 the SPR draws kind of wound down and stopped. We started seeing them uh, in December. Um, so I think you know that was my big warning flag really was this summer and I was like there's something really off with these numbers and it wasn't just me you know I mean I talked to Josh Young about it yeah often like we were talking all all summer about this because we just couldn't figure it out so when you look at when we look at those surprising demand numbers do they stick out still to you as anomalous or or has the inventory data that's come out since uh, back that up? Like, how do you, well, how, yeah, how do you I mean, looking that? at the weekly data, it's still very erratic. For a, a time period, it shouldn't be that erratic, right? You shouldn't fluctuate from one week to one week a million plus barrels. Just doesn't, that just doesn't make sense. We've been pretty consistent for 30 years. Do you know what I mean? Like, what in the world? So, what in the world is, okay, so let's, I, look, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist either. But let's 
full caveat here. Okay, we, we I, I want you to take a stab, and I'm gonna, I, you know, I'm gonna go right along there too, just because it's fun. But <laughs> putting on, you know, just putting on our analyst lens, rather than thinking about it conspiracy theories, can, do we can we come up with any narratives that fit? Like I, I was just sitting there scratching my head, going, somebody that's been reading these markets for so long, when there supposedly has been no structural change to the way we collect that, right? There's been no change right. that would explain this in terms of the way we collect data or the way we look at it. How, I'm sure your brain has gone down that road. Paint me some scenarios that make sense given what we're I don't at. know. I don't think, I think the weekly numbers are just not going back to, I think the weekly numbers are, there is something, they have to either be doing something different with the equation that they haven't disclosed or how they're looking, analyzing the data that they haven't disclosed. There has to be something different going on because you don't have numbers this erratic. We've just never had numbers this erratic, not on a week-to-week -week basis, right? And it's not, and it's not just down erratic, right? It's up. It's, it's all, all over the place. place. Exactly. That's the problem. Yeah, because if <laughs> yeah, because if it was just down and you kind of saw like this this kind of weight on the market's neck, I was just sitting there thinking maybe you could equate that, or at least here in the US, you could equate that to home building, you know, like how building of new homes has stopped. Like that's a, you know, that's a, that, that tends to be kind of a demand center for oil. But um, but if they're going in both directions, that wouldn't really explain Exactly, it. it's all over the place. And so, uh, you know, honestly, I, <clears throat> I wish I could give you, a, you know, a definitive answer, but I just can't. I don't know if how, how the equation was changed. I don't know if SPR messed everything up. I don't know if, you know, I, I think it all comes, you know, I think it comes down to the refining numbers, but I just can't figure it out exactly. <laughs> and trust me, I've been well, over it. And you also, I'm, you know, the other thing, again, not a conspiracy theorist, and I just, you know, we have a joke at our firm, which is we're not conspiracy theorists because they don't pay well. <laughs> um, you know, they just, I just, I've never seen conspiracy investing, you know, have a, have a really big winning streak. Um, but, but uh, it also, I think when you look at the current environment and you look at all of the extreme measures that governments are going through, I think it's probably not wise to completely disregard or discount the potential of them fixing numbers to paint the tape, paint the tape to their desires. Right? Also, a very distinct possibility. I mean, that's what I attribute those adjustment numbers to. That I mean, you, you, we're we're not talking in little numbers anymore. We, you know, we're, we're talking you know ten to fifteen million barrels a week. We're yeah, adding that, inventories. That's like that's huge. You know, when you used to have maybe you know plus or minus two million barrels. Now we're talking conditions yeah. of. You know. I I don't yeah I that's that is completely I you know and then trying to think about it in terms of just you know looking at it through an economic lens, I can't see anything economically that would account for that either. Right. right? In terms of what what would make for that kind of variance. Um, exactly. Anyway, very so. very very odd. Um, okay, so we have soaked up enough of your time here, and, and I really appreciate you giving some clarity. But before we go, um, anything that I haven't brought up, I always want to make sure, especially when I'm talking to guests like you, that you know, when I'm leading the, when I'm leading the, the conversation, um, I can leave out things that you think are important, and the most important things to me are, are what you think is important. So anything that we left out or anything that you think we should keep our eyes on here uh as it relates to crude and materials over the coming yeah, years? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that um, metal sector should do very well this year where, you know, uh, energy energy was kind of the darling the last two years. We've kind of, you know, kind of, I think, you know, hit this area where we're in kind of a consolidation. I think metals should do extremely well if we all don't, you know, if there's not a huge depression or recession. I think they should do very well in H2. Also, if you're following crude prices, um, you know, keep your eye on U.S. 10-year uh, yields, right? 
versus crude oil prices. And we're, we're seeing those yields start to break out right now. I mean, they're pretty well correlated. So uh, we're seeing those yields start to break out now. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if crude oil follows. Okay. Well, that you heard it from the, well, I call her the queen of crude. I hope I hope that I hope that that is not I hope, I hope that's a complimentary nickname. Yes, I'll take it. <laughs> You'll take it, right? All right, Tracy. Well, hey, thank. Oh, and by the way, too, tell everybody we've got a. I'm going to be do a spaces with you. Yes. Up on March 22nd. On, Mar- yes. on the 22nd, you will be on my spaces, which is uh, always after EIA at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, after the inventories and uh, always on Wednesday. So I will see you the 22nd um, on Twitter Spaces. <laughs> that hey, sounds good. I'm I looking. get to be a, I'm the yeah. host this time. Yeah, you're the host this time. And, and I, I'll tell you this. Um, this will be my first Twitter space. Oh. I haven't done one yet. Well, yeah. look at that. Now, yeah. now I feel good. You're, I'm the first person. <laughs> there you go. All right, Tracy. Well, we're looking forward to it, and I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll be sure to check back in with you here pretty soon. Definitely. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you again. Hey, and before you go really quick, all the folks can follow you at ShyGirls, at C-H-I-G-R-L on Twitter. Any other ways that they can follow you or get your information, where, where should where should the folks uh, follow yeah, you? Yeah, I um, write a weekly report for MarketsInsiderPro.com. Um, and then, uh, well, and then I do a Twitter spaces for place your trades. So that's right now. And, um, and I'm starting my own company, so, um, I will get information out. Um, you know, things progress a little bit. (laughs) Okay. Well, when you, yeah. And then on our next conversation, please remind me because, uh, let's talk about that new venture and, um, let's also talk how the folks can follow and participate and all that other kind of absolutely. All righty, Tracy. Thank you so much again. Great to talk to you and, uh, we'll be in touch soon. All right. Thank you. All right, you guys, thank you for listening as well. Again, I apologize. I'm hoping the audio quality comes out decent, but we had to work with what we had. I'm, I'm in a hotel room and, didn't have my production mic and wouldn't connect anyway long story but hopefully this was at least helpful uh enjoy i've got another stack we've got a we've still working through those stack interviews got several more good ones coming your guys' way so keep an eye out thanks again for listening we'll see you next week you're listening to know your risk radio podcast download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.